Hello, my name is Valerie Pringle, and I'm a Pierre Elliott Trudeau Foundation mentor. And I want to thank you for joining our Brave Space today. I invite you to reflect, along with our guests, the answers to questions and situations that confront us in our lives that push us to step outside our comfort zone. I know that I look forward to hearing all the viewpoints today's guests bring, and I hope you are too. Welcome to the plurality of perspectives. Welcome to our brave space. Failure can be demoralizing. It can impact our perception of self. It can lead us to question our own abilities. Even the fear of failure itself can prevent us from taking the risks that are necessary to achieve our goals, to flourish. How does failure actually help us grow as individuals? I'm Valerie Pringle. And welcome to this episode of Brave Spaces. We will be exploring these issues with three remarkable members of the Pierre Elliott Trudeau Foundation. So with us today, Laya Bebahani, who is a 2020 scholar. She is a doctoral student at the School of Communications at Simon Fraser University. Laya's research focuses on forced labor, modern day slavery, and human trafficking experiences in the Gulf states of the Middle East. Alison Furness is also a 2020 scholar and a doctoral candidate in the Department of Anthropology at the University of Cape Town in South Africa. Alison's research focuses on women artisanal Colton miners in the Democratic Republic of the Congo. And 2020 Pierre Elliott Trudeau Foundation mentor, Janice McDonald. Janice is an award-winning entrepreneur, a leadership expert, a best-selling author who is the founder of the Beacon Agency, which is a boutique advisory firm. Laya and Allison and Janice, uh, all of you welcome to Brave Spaces. Hi. Hi, Valerie. Thank you. So today, you know, obviously you come at this, you know, from all different backgrounds and very diverse experiences. As a mentor in the Trudeau Foundation, one year I got to actually select scholars, which was fantastic. And reading the resumes and going through these things, it's just an endless list of accomplishments and achievements and, you know, almost seeming superhuman. So obviously, this is what, you know, we tend to put forward into the world. And people in this community are loaded with accomplishments. But I think it is a really interesting thing to flip this around and look at it and talk about it from the opposite approach, which is focusing on failure and what people are able to learn about it. You know, let's start by talking about what is the failure that you are most proud of and how did you use that experience to recover and move forward? Laya, will you start? For sure. Yeah. So Valerie, I've been thinking about this question. It's a good question. Uh, the example that comes to mind for me, at least, is not something that, you know, perhaps I'd consider a failure per se, but something that's perhaps unconventional in, in the work that I do. In my case, I took a long time to complete my academic career. And I know it's not something that's really encouraged in academia to sort of take your time to do your undergraduate degree or your master's degree. But having taken seven years to do my undergraduate degree, I have to say, you know, I look back at it and it's really enriched my experience. It's expanded my outlook on life and, you know, more specifically my area of research, which is human trafficking, as you mentioned. So 
according to academic standards, I guess it could be perceived as a failure or a mistake to have taken so long. But but I have to say, from my perspective, I picked an alternative path. I undertook my time to you know do internships at places like the United Nations Human Trafficking Section in Vienna. I worked at the law school at UBC and the provincial courts in Canada. So altogether, you know, I look back and I think if I hadn't experienced these things, I'm not sure I'd be who I am today. So I don't I don't know if I consider it a mistake or a failure, but certainly unconventional in academia to have taken such a sort of long path to complete my academic work. So I guess that's the example that comes to mind for me. Is that more typical that people are supposed to know what they want, know where they're going, and it's a straight line upward? I would say, yeah. I mean, that's the thing that we're seeing most commonly. I'd say that most students typically are, you know, finish their doctoral work by the time they're in their late 20s or early 30s. And that's seen as, as the best sort of way to, to go about doing it. So taking your time is, is a little bit unconventional. Yes. Mm. Allison, what about you? You and failure. Tell a story. Admit it. Yeah, you know, okay, so you guys really aren't going to like my answer to this question, because the truth is, I really don't like this word failure. So for me, rather than looking at things as failure, I see, you know, these moments, the jobs we apply for, we don't get the internships you apply for, you don't get as opportunities to build resilience and to recalibrate and just maybe change your direction or your goals. So given a personal example, you know, when I first applied to the University of Cape Town, I applied for a master's in anthropology and I wasn't accepted. They wanted me to do and this extra honors year that they have here um, because I was changing disciplines. And at the time I had just been working in Tanzania and Namibia for four years in sport for development work, which was really soul wrenching work. And I had just moved home to Whitehorse in the Yukon where I'm born and raised. And at the time, you know, my plan was be home for six months, apply for grad school, go back to school because I had done my undergrad and worked for quite a few years. And then I wasn't accepted. So this was really in, in my mind in that moment, that was a huge setback for me. You know, I, I still don't look at it as a failure, but it was a big setback. But when I think of it now, especially in hindsight, you know, I really see that I am so glad I wasn't accepted to that program because actually I wasn't ready for grad school. I really needed to reconnect with my community, take some time to kind of heal and recover from four years of soul-wrenching development work. That's interesting. So, you know, I Janice, to you, now you come at this very differently, not academia. You're a mentor. Your background is an entrepreneur. What has been your most successful failure? Mm-hmm. Thank you. So, yes, if I look at this through my entrepreneurial lens, I'm very comfortable uh, with the word failure because I don't <laughs> think of it as failure. And I know that that uh, kind of sounds funny, but it builds on the comments both that Laya and Allison have made in the sense that to me, if I think about the biggest failure for me in, in any area of my life would be around not trying right? So holding myself back. In terms of failure, how I see it through that entrepreneurial lens, it really is failure is learning. And learning is what leads to the success. So to me, failure is completely part of success. It's that chance to begin again, to pivot, to adjust. But this time, when you, you know, make the 
the pivot and the adjustment, you're coming at your new challenge with more knowledge and more experience. If I bring it down to a tangible example from my days in the music industry in the 90s in retail and then online, perfect example, making a mistake in hiring the wrong people. Why, why did that matter? What happened? Well, as an example, you know, some people stole from me and from the business. And so, you know, you feel like, oh, you know, how could I have made that mistake and not chosen different people, et cetera. But really when, you know, putting it back into the failure is learning, learning is success, realized, hey, I got to make some changes here. Clearly I need better processes and need to make some adjustments in how I'm tracking inventory and how things are approached at work. And so again, you know, like Allison, that notion of reframing is really uh, powerful and positive. It does lead to better outcomes. You know, in the moment when things don't work out, it, it does not feel good. No one likes it. I mean, because, you know, you can say, oh, yeah, it was all for the good, <laughs> but for a little bit, <laughs> right. for a little while, it, it does sting and nobody, yeah. nobody likes that. Yeah. And I I will say, Valerie, that which I, you know, say regularly to my children, 10% on the problem, 90% of our effort on the solution. And so you're absolutely right. It stings. But, you know, I'm more driven to ensure that I'm not making that same mistake because I'm going to keep making mistakes. (laughs) That's inevitable. But really, have I learned? You know, have I taken the steps? Am I improving on this current problem, this current situation in front of me? Now, you know, I think this transitions nicely because what we what we sort of want to do here, and I think this would be helpful, you know, for the community and people listening to to the podcast is to have a bit of a thought exercise about dealing with this. You know, how do you find strategies that you can use in real life situations where you face a choice, you try and assess the risks, build on experiences you have? You know, I'm not an academic. My background is broadcasting. So I don't know that that world. And Laya, maybe you can weigh in on this to start with. You know, is it different in academia? Are you supposed to always look like and be a success in order to keep moving forward on some track that will take you to, you know, wherever professorship, tenureship, you know, whatever is deemed as, as the big success. In my experience, I mean, part of academia is you're expected to make mistakes because the, the expectation or the understanding is that that's the only way you learn. You know, I, I talk to professors who are established professors who have had their papers rejected 18, 19, 20 times over. And so failure is very much embedded in that experience because it's understood that experiential learning carries so much more weight than it does being given sort of the green light every single time you try to do something. And so positive reinforcement, you know, make, you know, taking productive risks, this is all part of the academic experience. And that's something that I actually think is one of the, one of the highlights of, of academia is that you're expected to take productive risks and you're expected to, to fail. You're expected to make mistakes because it's all seen as, as an, an opportunity to contribute to the person that you're going to become as an academic. And Allison, leap in or, or, you know, Janice, how do you assess? How do you look at these things? How do you, how do you figure out which risks are worth taking? I mean, for me, a big part of this conversation around taking risks involves being mindful of alternative views, but never being afraid to question them. Like, I really think in 
in taking risk, you're taking actions, you're probably going to face a lot of naysayers within that. So there's going to be tons of people who tell you, you can't do it, you shouldn't do it, whatever you're doing is impossible. And I am so convicted to not listening to those voices and those people. But of course, being mindful of those alternative views, but never afraid to question them. So for me, I'll give the example of my, you know, my master's fieldwork in Eastern DRC. It's a context of political instability, unpredictability. There's still active armed groups, even though it's more of a post-conflict context. So when I was going to do fieldwork, you know, everyone told me I couldn't do it. I shouldn't do it. Even my own supervisor, my academic supervisor told me she thought I was crazy to do research in Eastern DRC. But I was convicted. I knew it was a worthwhile project. I knew it could be done and I knew I could do it. And it almost failed, really, because it, I faced so many delays and so many challenges in organizing that kind of research in that kind of environment that's just unpredictable and a bit unstable, that it was really challenging. I mean, I went in really cold. I didn't know anyone. I didn't have people to help me in the beginning. Like I was going in really, totally Allison, out of the I, If I were your mother, I would have been worried. <laughs> no, really, it's true. I, she was worried. But I mean, there was like a few, you know, a handful of people and literally I can count them on one hand who supported the idea. And for me, my strategy became that it, those negative voices were so prevalent that it actually did start to erode my confidence on the project. So what I started doing was just essentially not really talking to people about the project or really watering down what I was doing so that I wasn't constantly immersed in that kind of negativity to sort of protect myself from, from people telling me I couldn't when I knew I could. You know, I think that's a really important conversation. And, you know, if my supervisor's telling me about, you know, she's worried about real dangers. Sure. I need to like prepare a safety plan and those kind of things. And I need to out, uh, outline that I have good health insurance and all that kind of stuff, but it doesn't mean it can't be done. And I think especially in academia, people are pushing boundaries. They're going to places that not everyone goes to. They're asking questions people don't want to hear. You're going to face a lot of pushback on that. You're going to face a lot of challenges, but you have to always, like I always go back to being mindful of our alternative views, but never afraid to question them. Jana, sounds fearless to me, right? Yeah, absolutely. And I think Allison highlighted something really important, which is, especially when you're pushing boundaries and taking those risks, you need to have a or some champions or at least cheerleaders that, you know, you can turn to and feel like they're going to build you up. And uh, because hopefully, you know, you are, and as she's indicated, asking herself the questions that she needs in terms of a safety plan, et cetera. And for all of us, you know, when we think about what would be a helpful question to move forward? Well, many entrepreneurs, but I think this is true of, of scholars as well, is asking yourself, well, what's the worst thing that can happen? Yeah, and we, <laughs> I've asked myself that many, many times in my yeah, life, right? Right. And so the first reason, because sometimes we even sidestep looking at what really the worst thing is, or the, or the worst things can be. And so first of all, really kind of doing an audit of what that is, and then get comfortable with those possibilities. Next, we have to evaluate the likelihood of those things happening, and then uh, clearly adjust as necessary. So you know, determine where you are on that comfort level. The other thing that can be really helpful is taking smaller steps in the direction that you want to go. And that could be even if it's not directly in the uh, direction that you want to go, perhaps adjacent to. So, you know, continuing to move forward until perhaps you feel, um, you know, you're ready to 
move into that more kind of serious direction, but around this idea of still moving forward in the direction uh, that you ultimately want to go. Yeah, I was going to say, I totally agree with both Janice and Allison. I think the one thing that that I always have to take into account, similar to Allison, my research is a bit of a taboo subject in the Gulf. So no one really wants to talk about, you know, forced labor or slavery or human trafficking. So doing, you know, field research is not optimal there. But having made the decision to do research on that area on this subject, one of the things that I that I sort of foreground in any of my work is, will it pose a harm to myself or anyone else? And if that's the case, then for me personally, I think that productive risk sort of um, tends to weigh on the side of it's, it's not worth it, the cost is just too high. But if you're thinking about it in terms of risk taking, unless you take those types of risks, Allison's right, you, you can't produce the kind of work that, that academia encourages. We're encouraged to think outside the box. We're encouraged to do work that is perhaps pushing the boundaries. You've got to ruffle feathers and you've got to be brave, I guess, to stand up and, and defend. Yeah. And to ask those difficult questions that Allison's right, that people don't want to, to ask. You know, Laya, with you, just as you say, with your research, you know, intrinsically, there may be resistance, you know, where you're studying human trafficking, et cetera, that, you know, we don't want to talk about it doesn't exist here. You know, it's verboten. How do you assess going forward and what risks are worth taking? Yeah, you know, Valerie, I would say it's probably more than just pushing boundaries and and assessing risk. In the case of of the Gulf states, certain types of research will bar you from ever entering the country. And so that's the sort of subject that I'm looking at is, is is it worth it? Is it worth never being able to to go back to those states? Is it worth putting some of those communities at risk? And so for me, not really doing research on the ground there is not worth it, but I can certainly do research that's a bit more innovative and start to look at work that you know, looking at migration patterns from sending countries uh, who send migrant workers to the Gulf states, and that's possible. So there's always an alternative strategy that you can take where you're, you're not necessarily pushing aside your area of interest or the questions that, that you think should be asked, but there's a way to do it in a way that poses perhaps less harm or no harm, you know, optimally to, to those who you're studying. So for me, putting the migrant communities that I'm working with and I'm studying you know, top of mind, I would say that their their um, safety is is most important to me. And then second to that is, of course, asking those difficult questions. And so I've reframed my research to, you know, like I said, do field research from the sending countries, which are like Egypt, India, Pakistan, and the Philippines, and, and doing field research. They're asking questions, doing participant observations and interviews with migrant communities, rather than going to the Gulf states and putting those communities at risk, because they're already in precarious situations. And so for me, it wouldn't be it wouldn't be worth the risk to put them at, at you know in potential you know potential harm. And Allison, for you as well. I mean, if you're you've essentially been doing this, but giving advice to another scholar who's listening about your work and and how you approach it. It's true that in at what Laya's saying, I mean, to build on that, it's true that you have to calculate risk differently between your yourself as the researcher, if I'm speaking like in an academic space, versus your participants. But I would say, honestly, people, I really think people are too afraid to do things a lot of times just because of assumptions and stereotypes. And that's where I really want to just say again how important, you know, if you're a young scholar, you want to do field work primary research yourself, ethnography, whatever, interviews even, you know, don't be afraid to do something that other people haven't done just because people tell you you can't. But be strong in your convictions and your confidence in the project. 
and really be firm in your beliefs that there's value in what you're doing. I'll build on that because I, I think generally speaking, people make too few mistakes. They're not taking enough risks. And sure, that might be my entrepreneurial hat, but you know, having been a researcher myself as well, I agree that people are telling you not, you know, so much, don't do this, don't do that, particularly I think for, for women. But one of the things that I would like in terms of uh, advice for people to consider is to be intentional about their network. And, you know, if we go back to the foundation, there's a a beautiful network of support. And I think for scholars and, and those pursuing their career to bring some intention into expanding their network and getting those different points of view and different uh, areas of support can be really powerful in terms of leading you in new directions and uh, questioning uh, your questions and you know how you're uh, approaching things. So I know certainly it's been powerful for me to be intentional in that way. And I've seen the benefit of that for others. So I offer that for consideration. I thank all of you for your <laughs> for your insight and for telling us your stories and for your bravery. So I will thank Laya Bebahani as again and Alison Furness and Janice McDonald, all part of the Pierre Elliott Trudeau Foundation community. Next time we'll be discussing how we look after ourselves and recover after really difficult, challenging conversations that uh, obviously many people in this community have as they're doing their research and and moving forward. So the guests uh, then will be 2019 Pierre Elliott Trudeau Foundation Scholar Diane Roberts and 2019 mentor Shannon Linsenberger. So thank you very much. This concludes this episode of Brave Spaces from the Pierre Elliott Trudeau Foundation. I hope that something resonated for you today within the guest stories and reflections and conversation. You don't have to wait until the next episode to find opportunities to be inspired by the truly brilliant people in our community. Follow us on Twitter, Facebook, and LinkedIn to hear updates. And of course, subscribe to this podcast so you can join us next time. I hope that this episode has inspired you to be brave. I'm Valerie Pringle. Until next time.